Welcome to HJ Talks About Charities, a dedicated podcast series from our charities team at Hugh James. In this podcast, we talk about topical issues and the latest developments affecting charitable and not-for-profit organisations to help provide some practical guidance to ensure they run effectively. We are lawyers, so we will touch on the legal standpoints surrounding the topics, but don't worry, we'll keep the legalese to a minimum. Welcome everyone, I'm Roman Kubek. I'm Head of Legacy Protection Services here at Hugh James. This is our first podcast in quite a while. Obviously, we've had the rather dark days of the last 12 months, but this is to looking forward. And um, I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Bolt, who's a senior associate in the team. Hi, Sarah. Hi, everybody. I joined in January, so um, I've come from offshore and I'm looking forward to working with Roman and the team here going forward. I mean, I think, I imagine Sarah will be well known to a number of people listening to this podcast. Hi, Mum. Um, so, but uh, no, Sarah will be well known to particular members of the ILM and the CLA. And those who haven't met Sarah or myself, obviously, we're looking forward to meeting you all shortly. We've got a series of webinars that we're doing in conjunction with ILM and uh, with the Law Society. So if you're interested, please check them out. Anyway, today... We are talking about technical issues in charity law, aren't we? Yeah, technical issues in charity law as a result of the uh, response by the government to the consultation paper. I believe it was from five years ago now, so it's been quite some time. And I believe the review started even longer ago in 2012. So it's it's been a while to come up. But thankfully, there are now a number of recommendations coming out of it. And the report has primarily been accepted across the board. There are a few exceptions to that, but for now I think we're going to discuss a few of the major topics that have come out of the consultation. Yeah, there were 43 recommendations right there that the Law Commission produced, broken down into 12 subsections as it were. I mean, just a bit of background to people. Uh, yeah, for those who don't, we'll take it back to basics. The Law Commission is essentially a group of people who are responsible for reviewing the law of England and Wales of actually in Scotland as well, and recommending changes to that law and removing obsolete legislation just to keep, or try to keep things tidy and under review. In respect of the charity law, I think the clues in the name really of the consultation, is they call it technical issues in charity law. This is really about streamlining the processes and removing the red tape, isn't it, that charities have to go through with charity commission, with courts, and with the Charities Act, it's been most recent version of the Act, been embedded in for 10 years now, pretty much, isn't it? Very much so. And before that, some of the recommendations come out of the 06 Act as well. So it has been a long time coming. Gosh, I could not. What were you doing 10 years ago? I think I was fresh faced solicitor with a bright future ahead of me. I don't know what went wrong. Oh, I was training still. <laughs> We've all come a long way since then. And um, yeah, here's to, here's to another 10 years. Okay, so like we said, it was broken down into 12 key parts. I mean, in respect of our line of work on the legacy front, there were some aspects that jumped out more than others. But the initial ones, I mean, it's probably easier if we work through them in the same order the government has. So the first one was talking about financial thresholds. So essentially, looking to put these in line with essentially with uh, inflation, wasn't it? Just to, again to streamline the process. I mean, it was saying that uh, the government should periodically review all financial thresholds in the Charities Act with a view to increasing them in line with inflation. The government accepted that recommendation, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah. Again, just about removing administrative burden. So we won't dwell on that too long. 
Second one was changing purposes and amending governing documents. So the situation there was they wanted, essentially the point is that all charities have a governing document and these sometimes need to be amended, you know, to allow a charity to run effectively. And again, it's looking at the way that the process is streamlined. The government accepted the recommendations that the charitable or incorporated organisation's constitution should take effect on the date the resolution is passed. Uh, on a later date specified in the resolution, description changes to a charity's objects as a regulated alteration in section 198 is amended to affect the description in section 226. And the Charities Act 2011 is amended by the court and charity commission's power to make schemes extends to corporate charities. So I think what it's looking to do is just to put in line CIOs and other charitable structures and organisations, isn't it? So um, there are the recommendations there. Again, these were accepted by the government. The main point was that it's complicated and costly for unincorporated charities to change its purpose. So giving them the power to do that in a sort of streamlined procedure was felt better and subject to appropriate safeguards, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think in terms of most of them, there's still going to be a core number of regulated sections that the Charity Commission are going to want to have oversight from, which I think is entirely reasonable in the circumstances. So it just gives charities the power to make sure they can go through their trustees, providing they exercise the right steps to do that. It's not the most interesting area in the sense that the charities want to go through, but changing purposes sometimes is necessary yeah. and needed. And you don't want to go through the cumbersome process of all the kind of rigid steps of doing that. So it gives them more power and flexibility in that respect. Yeah, I think they've, I mean, they've looked at sort of the government and Privy Council. They've gone to them to look at the responses. And yeah, again, I mean, they all seem to be agreed with the Law Commission on those. The big one for me was at the Privy Council was a recommendation about charters being printed on vellum, which obviously, for those who don't know, is animal skin parchment. That would be much to Jacob Rees-Mogg's chagrin because I think he's a big fan of vellum, isn't he? Yeah, sorry, it's uh, looking at alternative methods. I mean, uh, by alternative methods, I think they mean paper, possibly, but I'm sure, I'm sure other forms of stationery are available. <laughs> um, but look, I'm rambling on. But look, these are the general recommendations here, weren't they, within that? Yeah, and the more relevant, I think, the most relevant, uh, or coming on to the more relevant topics, is the CPRA system at the moment. So a number of charities will have specific fundraising appeals. So, say, for example, you get too much or too little money. What do you do with the money if the appeal isn't going to raise as much as you'd hoped? Does that go back to the individual donors? If you raise too much, do you have to then put the money back to the individual donors? The current law, as it stands, offers the right to go back to the donor and you have to offer them the funds in a particular and set way. Depending on the size of those donations, it, it can be quite a, a costly undertaking for each of the charities and entirely disproportionate. For example, if you had to contact every person that had donated £10 towards a charitable cause, say you were raising money for a wing of a, cha- a hospital, for example, that becomes quite a lengthy process of which someone has to go through and undertake that that for you. As it stands, they're looking at how they go back to, to those individual donors and what process they, they do that with. So the proposal that was put forward is that essentially trustees can take reasonable steps, essentially, depending on the charitable campaign they're doing, 
to see whether or not they can identify those donors and get the funds back to them. I don't know if you want to comment a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the technical term for this I've heard used a lot is that the current procedure is a faff, <laughs> basically. And, and I, I think this is really sensible. So it talks about failed appeals. You've got you know, the ring of the hospital, but they're saying that these donations should be applied CPRE. So, you know, mo- you know, most people will know what that means, but obviously CPRE, derived from French, means so close or as near as possible. So it basically gives, seeks to give effect to a legacy of a gift with a clear charitable intention, which would otherwise fail. So here it's kind of, they've got like a de minimis exception, haven't they? That if the donation doesn't exceed £120 and the trustees reasonably believe that the total given by the donor to the fundraising appeal over the financial year wouldn't exceed that, then they don't have to go through the rigmarole of finding them and asking them, do you want this pound back or do you want us to use it for another cause? I mean, it, it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? It just... Yeah, and I, I think in line going forward, if those thresholds are to change, they've given the, the right to do that as well, which is, again, quite sensible as well. So Yeah, just yeah, I mean, having to avoid this same consultation in 10 years' time, <laughs> isn't it? So that's kind of their recommendation 11, isn't it? And then recommendation 12 talks about the advertisement and inquiry requirements and obviously the proceeds of a failed appeal being returned and donor being given the opportunity to have the funds returned to them, signing declarations and so on, which you think that should be repealed, that part. And having a, what seems quite a cumbersome process in that you were required to hold on to funds for a six-month period, absolutely absurd, £650, for example. So I, I think removing those sections is quite rightly the right step in the right direction for the charities and should remove a lot of fat again. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, shall we use FAF or cumbersome process yeah. moving forward? No, but, um, yeah, <laughs> FAF is, I think. So, yeah, it's great news. I say great news. It certainly makes life a lot easier, doesn't it? So, and they're talking about where the proceeds from failed appeals and surplus cases are applicable. Applicable CPRE tries to have a power to resolve that the proceeds be applied for the new purposes, having regard to the desirability of securing that the purposes are similar to the specific charitable purposes, the need for them to be suitable. Proceeds exceed £1,000, a resolution should only take effect when the Charity Commission consents to it. And again, that financial threshold should be capable of amendment by secondary legislation. So again, the government thinks that's proportionate and that charity consent only needs to be obtained in cases where the appeal process appeal exceeded £1,000. And that's for the actual campaign itself, not individual donations, yeah. which is quite important. So any big campaigns are going to exceed that process, I think. Yeah, definitely. Then the fifth sort of category of revisions or the points that the Lord Commission were looking at were acquisitions, disposals and mortgages of charity land, weren't they? So I know this is something which, again, the ILM were particularly focused on. We're looking at this, particularly when it comes to, in the context of legacies, when it comes to disposals and sales of property, I mean, that's a, that accounts for a big part of legacy income, right? income in the sector generally, doesn't it? And the recommendations here, again, are just about making life easier. So it's looking at when you need to get a report, when you're looking at selling or disposing of a property or land, the category of designated advisors under Part 7 of the Charities Act should be expanded to include fellows of the National Association of Estate Agents and the Central Association of Agricultural Valuers. Again, the government's accepted the recommendations there. 
So it expands the range of specialist advisors. I know that members of the ILM, when they were asked all those years ago now, provided you were hugely in support of that, felt that that was a much better and easier way of doing it, streamlined the process. And the other point is that there shouldn't be a statutory requirement for trustees to advertise at this position as advisor and surveyor support. So again, I think probably welcome in the sector. There seems to be, well, I know, particularly looking at the island response to law commission's consultation, again, with a fresh provider, I mean, it, well, it just reminded me that there was a lot of confusion generally about when and if part seven needed to be invoked. And I'm not just talking about within the sector, but within or by professional executives and administrators, isn't there? Yeah, very much so. Again, the government accepted the recommendations that Part 7 should only apply when land is solely held by or held in trust solely for a single charity. So if there's numerous charities, then that requirement isn't necessary. And then similar recommendations, there were recommendations about connected persons. So the, the connected persons regime in Part 7 of the Charities Act um, talks about when and if they should apply. They're saying that connected persons should exclude employees where the disposal is the grant of a short residential tenancy to a charity employee, exclude wholly owned subsidiaries and be capable of amendment by secondary legislation. And there's a reference in there to children. And if you look later on in the act, definition of child is defined as an illegitimate child. So there are various recommendations about that. They're saying the government partially accepted that recommendation. I think they, they were concerned about wholly owned subsidiaries being excluded, weren't they? Because they thought they, you needed a check and balance there, you need to trust these considering the interests of the subsidiary in place of the charity, and that could lead to conflicts of interest. And they obviously agreed with removing the illegitimate child reference, they said it was outdated and unnecessary. They also agreed with removing or the excluding the employees where the disposal is the grant of a short residential tenancy. Recommendation 17 was a recommendation that charities be required to include in a contract for a disposition of charity land, i.e. a sale or the dealing of charity land, a statement that part seven of the Charities Act 2011 have been complied with and a contract for a disposition of the charity land should be enforceable by a purchaser if there's a certificate that's been given in the contract or it's not been given but the purchaser has acted in good faith. Government accepted that recommendation as well, didn't they? They said that purchase not currently protected under contract for sale of land, but the charity hadn't complied with statutory requirements. So again, this kind of helps potential purchasers who haven't been on notice, think it's part onerous and causes delay and expense. It seems that the big controversial section is recommendation 18, it's one of the only sections um, where there is some disagreement by the response. Disposals of designated land, which can be local school, recreation, village hall properties, typically, there can be a lot of controversial disposals and they can generate quite a lot of response from the public. So the government response was very much that they didn't accept that the proposal to remove advertising that effectively should be removed. They they are saying that they should say that public notice requirements are appropriate in every case and to allow that debate to continue and to allow people to feed into that is in the public interest and, and requires charities to go through that process as well. So that is one of a few kind of feedback that they have uh, rejected in terms of going forward. Yeah, and I've got to say, I can kind of understand that in the context that they, they've listed it in, so for recreation grounds, 
know, the, the village hall and you know local schools. I, I can understand their rationale there, but I, I know what you mean when you see it written. We do not accept this recommendation. It's hard to take it perfect. Oh, okay. But it's, as it says, one of only a few. And they can apply, and that remains the case now, for exemptions, if for any reason they feel that they don't want to or don't have to submit an advertisement. So it's not like there isn't a check and balance in there already. Yeah. Recommendation 19 about inquiring land. Advice should be obtained. This is talking about how advice should be, you know, your, you know, your recommendation. Advice should be obtained not just from surveyor but from a fellow of the National Association of Estate Agents or Central Association of Agricultural Valuers and again that's what they're talking about is whether about the guide being published by the Charity Commission and um, so the government has said well look this is for the Charity Commission to consider but they understand that they accept the recommendation. The Charity Commission's position is that they, rec- they advise charities to follow the Part 7 regime on acquiring land kind of to, really to protect them isn't it and to make sure it's any acquisition, well, any disposal, disposition of land is dealt with, well, is in the charity's best interests. I think, I mean, again, they've, they've accepted the other recommendations in that regard about disposal of land by liquidators, administrators, and mortgages to be excluded from those Part 7 requirements, and the exception in Section 117 to be formulated so that applies only to disposals that are solely intended to further the transfer of charity's purposes. We come on to permanent endowments, number six. So the permanent endowment, it's essentially property that belongs to charity that can't be spent, isn't it? So it's locked up, essentially. And quite simply, they're, um, they're looking to reformulate the definition of a permanent endowment to remove its inconsistencies and lack of clarity, as they call it, and the government agrees. Then there are various measures to release the restrictions in section 281 and 282 of the Charities Act essentially to release them and there's power to release the permanent endowment restriction should be available to all charities and there's a potential exclusion at the moment of corporate charities should be removed. They also recommend the power to release permanent endowment restrictions should be, depend on the value of the permanent endowment alone and the power to release permanent endowment restrictions should be available in respect of permanent endowment funds up to a value of £25,000. There's a time limit for the Charity Commission to respond to a resolution that should be reduced to 60 days. That should commence when the resolution received by the Charity Commission should be suspended until 42 days. Let's look when the Commission saying it should be suspended until 42 days after public notice is given, should be suspended until that information is provided by the Commission and the parallel regime for what they call special trusts should be repealed. The government accepts that basically. They're saying there's no policy reason why a charity of a corporate structure should be excluded. Again, I'm right in saying so that they're looking to apply the same rule to charities with a corporate structure as to other charities, aren't they? Yeah, very much so. So recommendations go on. They accept that the trustees be given a statutory power to borrow from their permanent endowment by allowing them to resolve to spend up to 25% subject to a requirement they recoup that expenditure within 20 years. I mean, it's an interesting one, but I, I can understand the rationale and that trusts are given a power once they've opted into the regulations governing total return investment to resolve the permanent endowment restrictions be further released to permit them to make social investment with a negative or uncertain financial return. I mean, they're saying they're, they're useful additions to the trustee's existing toolbox while protecting the enduring nature of the permanent endowments. 
if I'm honest, I, I haven't really given too much thought into this. Obviously, I've noted it, but I'm not sure there's anything really else I'd comment on that. But... I don't have anything either. I mean, the more interesting point for like, ILM members or charities in general, I think, comes on to the actions by trustees on the next recommendation about allowing trustees to be able to recover for the service of goods, supply of goods, sorry, rather than services as well. If you want to move on to that a bit. Yeah. So under Section 185 of the Charities Act 2011, charities are allowed to remunerate trustees for the supply of services. The basic position is that a charity trustee cannot make gains from their position as a trustee, but if they are providing services and they're of benefit to the charity and they're to a profit to the charity, rather than that individual trustee, then the, um, the, they are permitted in certain circumstances. So that would be catering services, that would be legal services. Say, for example, you have a trustee that has, is legally qualified being able to offer that service for a, at cost rather than, say, for a, a more expense on the open market. So it's just looking at goods, and um, Roman and I discussed this before, but we're probably looking at hiring a village hall or, or something like a photocopier or something that can be given to the charity at a lower price than you'd go out onto the open market to get. So extending the power to allow supply of services and goods obviously makes good sense. And um, I think it will obviously help. There is obviously a question mark over self-dealing and um, whether it causes some conflict in that role. But I think there's probably sufficient kind of protection that has been given. Say, for example, the Charity Commission does have to approve such payments it has to be shown to them that it is of benefit to the charity and it would be inequitable for the trustee not to be remunerated. So there are going to still be hurdles to go through, but obviously that's with the greater view of looking at the charity overall. Yeah, I think that's it. It's balancing, isn't it? Sort of the fear of trustees self-dealing and acting in their own self-interest with actually looking at a pragmatic approach of, well, look, is it for the charity, is it in the charity's best interest? Because I mean there was a recent case so I did an article on about Manton and Manton. I heard this year, I think it was before I was on Justice Matthews, I think, unsurprisingly, probably to those who know for the, uh, the world of litigation in Bristol and, well, and beyond. In that case, there was a, a trustee of a family trust who left the family trust business, established a competing business, and was removed as a trustee as a result. So trustees are held to a very high standard. There was a quote in Lewin on Trust, which was used in that case, which basically said a trustee mustn't place themselves in a position where their personal interests conflict or may conflict with their fiduciary duty, so that, you know, overriding duty tracks in the best interests of the trust. And it's, it's really, you know, that, that duty doesn't differ in respect to charities. But what they're saying here is, well, look, if this benefits the charity, and it can be shown to benefit the charity, and it would be unfair not to allow the person to be remunerated for those goods, then we think it's right that they should be. So services, there is a provision obviously already within the Charity Act to provide services, as you've said, which just extends to goods. We did, I certainly struggled at first to think, well, what good could you possibly be? But as I said, you know, venue hire or photocopier or, you know, office stationery, things, things like that. And it's just to say that power is supplementing whatever there is in the governing documents that the charity has already. So. And one of the caveats and one of the protections is that the powers will be subject to challenge by way of judicial review. So that still remains as a, a safeguard as well as the Charity Commission consent. So. I did wonder whether this might encourage people who have goods to offer to 
act as charity trustees where otherwise maybe they might not. But, you know, it remains to be seen. So, you know, I don't think there's been an influx of bad trustees because of the services provision, has there? So the next one, I guess another relevant one, particularly for those in the legacy sector, was the ex-gratia payments for charity funds. So essentially, for those who don't know, ex-gratia payments are, there's no legal basis on which to make ex-gratia payments, but they're payments out of the charity's funds where there's essentially a moral obligation. So there's no strict legal definition, but in the context of legacies, payments out of or a waiver of a right to a legacy or a share of residue, which charity trustees have no legal obligation or power to make, or which they think they have a moral obligation. So I mean, the classic example is where charity has been left money in a will by way of a legacy or the residuary estate. And essentially later, there is evidence by family members that the testator has changed their mind. They were taking steps to either change it or their wishes had changed completely to benefit another individual. So although the formalities haven't been complied with, there is clear evidence that, say, son or daughter should have benefited. And at that point in time, what does the charity do? Does it agree to pay some or all of the money to that individual? And at the moment, it's quite a, uh, using the earlier word, fast to go through that process. So at the moment, it's necessary to seek the charity's commission permission for all exposure payments. And uh, it can be quite disproportionate and time-consuming to do that. So at the moment, it is a long process. It is something the charities probably don't look forward to doing. And it can be quite a big burden on those that have to go through that process. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, you know, in terms of the amounts which can be made, you know, there's, I know different charities have different rules and, you know, different policies internally about, you know, some charities, I think, look at the ILM response, you know, have responded differently to when they seek authorization, when they delegate. But this recommendations of the Law Commission are to introduce a new power allowing trustees to make small ex-ratio payments without having to obtain prior authority from the Charities Commission, the Attorney General of the Court. Such a power to make ex-ratio payments without authorization should apply payments, and then it's linked to based on the income. So it's £1,000 in the case of charities with a gross income, annual gross income of up to £25,000, £2,500 in the case of gross income of 25000 or between 25000 and 250000 £10,000 in the case of a charity with a gross income of more than 250000 and up to a million, and then £20,000 in case of all other charities with income in excess of £1 million. So again, I think there's thresholds are capable of amendment, which is good news going forward, so they can be reviewed about the need to go through this process again, and that, that will limit at how charities go like, can look at the, the, the requests they're receiving. But my expectation would be that there will probably be a lot more requests to the charities around that threshold yeah. because they know that charities will have the permission to do that without having to go to the charity commission. So probably one to watch and monitor to see what does come in and when comes in and see if there is a trend in that general direction. Yeah, I think so. So your legacy officer, there you'll be getting many more requests by us pesky lawyers, no doubt. <laughs> but at the same time, for the trustees, they can delegate many of these decisions. So government accepts that recommendation by the Law Commission to delegate the decision, which should be helped. I know for a number of people within the sector, obviously that's something which they're keen to do, and I know has been done anyway in certain circumstances, with de minimis exceptions. But that's all, I think, really good news. 
And I think one of the other things was that the uh, recommendations also applies to statutory charities as well as uh, charitable charities. So, yeah, uh, yeah it, that power is extended, which is a good thing all around. Great. So, and then we are move on to uh, charity mergers. I think and that's the next sort of big standout headline piece from these recommendations. I mean, these are, they recommend that you know, the resolutions transfer property be repealed and part of Section 268 of the Charities Act. They recommend the first exclusion from Section 310 with vesting declarations about mergers be repealed and leases containing absolute covenants against assignments be excluded from Section 310. That's all accepted. Move on to say that where charity, when a charity is merged and the merger is registered, for the purposes of ascertaining whether a gift has been made to that charity under Section 311 of the 2011 Act, the charity should be deemed to have continued to exist despite the merger. So when there's two or more charitable incorporated organisations, when they amalgamate for purposes of ascertaining whether a gift has been made to the amalgamated CIO under Section 239, the original CIO should be deemed to have continued to exist. These are, and it goes on, and these are essentially, it's about gift saving, isn't it? And yeah, and it's going to take out. I think it will remove a lot of shell charities yeah. that are now out on the market just just for the sole purpose of capturing gifts. And it may even remove the need to rectify a number of wills because there won't be that challenge or uncertainty, which is always a good thing for charities to know that those gifts will follow through. And going forward, if someone does refer to the wrong or incorrect name of a previous charity, it means it will follow through to this one, which is good all round, I think. Yeah, I think it's a really good point about the rectification of wills because, yeah, inevitably there are cases where that would need to happen, wouldn't it? If you've got charities that have since merged. So, yeah, I think this is, again, it seems like a common sense thing, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. So, and they talk about trust corporation status being conferred automatically on existing and future corporate charities in respect of any charitable trust, of which the corporation is a trustee. And then there's regulation relating to CIOs to be repealed and that's accepted. So essentially there are three routes at the moment to obtaining trust corporation status and the government feels that they're time consuming and cumbersome. So they think an automatic trust corporation status where a charitable where well where in respect of any charitable trust with the corporation, the trustee, is a way of resolving that. Again, I think probably common sense, probably welcome news to many in the states of particularly those in CIOs. Recommendation nine looks at charities and trustee insolvency, doesn't it? It's, um, I mean, it's only a brief recommendation. It's, it just looks at basically the guidance of the Charity Commission managing a charity's finances should be revised. And the Charity Commission has accepted their recommendations to revise it just to make clear about what property is available and what property constitutes trust property and what falls within the definition of permanent endowments, special trust or restricted funds and reflect more fully the law governing the exercise of trustees' rights of indemnity. The recommendation under Part 10 deal with charity names and just requires the Charity Commission to be empowered to issue a direction relying on any ground in Section 42 to require charities to stop using a working name. Basically, it's about you know registering names, preventing registration of charities or holding, holding them off where there's a dispute over a name or the name is too similar to the working name of another charity or where it's offensive or so on. So I don't know, for instance, having the Royal Society of the protection of cruelty to animals rather than prevention, I guess, is a, is a silly example. But 
or containing an expletive in the name. I, I, I don't know why that would happen, but just as a good example of something that would be offensive to somebody, I suppose. Yeah, oh, you're not going to cite an example? I'm not going to cite oh, okay. any example. I, can, can you think of an example? <laughs> oh, please. I'd love to. I'm struggling uh, to find one. What, what would be an offensive? Well, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to repeat <laughs> These podcasts could end very quickly for me. I did some digging to see if there was any case on unoffensive names, and in the short time I couldn't find anything, but I'd love to know what names were deemed offensive for the purposes of this. Under Section 11, then, we've got, or Part 11 of the recommendations, is the identity of a charity's trustees. So then there's inconsistency between the Charity Commission's power to determine a charity's members and the lack of a corresponding power to determine the trustees. You think... The fact is, say obviously, the ability to determine a charity's members can have a role in governing charities, such that electing its trustees is helpful and uh, resolving confusion. And they think there should be an equivalent for appointing and recommending trustees. What's interesting about that, though, is that it requires the consent of the trustee being appointed. Yeah. So if they don't <laughs> consent, then they don't have to go to the Charities Commission to be ratified. So I was thinking of an example that I was going through, but... Say you have two groups of warring trustees in a, in a charity, say a religious one, for example, and then they both agree under assessment agreement or something to that effect that they will agree that the two sets will vote on, uh, or the members will vote on a group of trustees. What if those trustees then go, no, we don't want to be ratified? Um, <laughs> I just bit of a loophole in that very big process. I imagine yeah. there's a data protection issue on the consent or something to that effect. So yeah. it just seems a bit of an odd one. But again, the decisions to ratify or not ratify remain subject to judicial review. So there are still safeguards in that process, which is a bit of an oddity. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, uh, and then we have the final recommendation, well, the final series of recommendations, which looks at the charity tribunal and the courts. and. The big one, which again was one that the government finally said, said, we do not accept this recommendation, was recommendation number 40, and this relates to charity proceedings under section 115 of the Charities Act. So it's saying that the permission or the authorization to be obtained from either the, either the court or the Charity Commission in circumstances where the Charity Commission would face an actual or apparent conflict of interest. And we discussed this earlier, didn't we? And it's an interesting one because I can see why it would be required or have the option to go either call or charity commission. But the, the response essentially says the power should remain with the charity commission. The reason for that is that most of the proceedings that go through are tribunal proceedings. Yeah. And they don't fall within the definition of charity proceedings. So on the rare occasions that permission is required, it makes sense then that that power remains with the Charity Commission. I think it would probably have been useful to allow certain circumstances in which the court should be permitted to do that, because obviously there are checks and balances in that process. And if there's any doubt, the court could no doubt refer to the Charity Commission. So yeah. there would have been a process to go through. But then again, this is one of the ones when the recommendation has been firmly rejected. That power, wants, they want to remain just with the Charity Commission. So going forward, it's going to still be the same cumbersome process that it is now. And unfortunately, it'll be something the charities will have to go through. But at the end of the day, it is all on the basis that they want to protect charity assets against uh, kind of fruitless litigation and, and delays, really. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, I guess it's not going to say it comes down to proportionality, but there will be there will be cases where conflict does arrive. I think what they're saying is that the way to deal with it is having information barriers they call them you know budget i guess you know what the 
but we, you know, like you have in Northern, you know, the Chinese walls and so on. And it's, I think that's what they're saying here is to have these, these systems within the Charity Commission should be good enough. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced personally, but you know, if there's ever a test case, we'll find out, won't we? What is good though is the next recommendation yeah. that does allow charity tribunals to make authorised cost orders. So at the moment, in the kind of way of protecting trustees in advance, you can get a bedo order where the charity court looks at the cost and uh, looks at whether they're going to be well incurred and, and agrees with them, so they provide some protection for the trustees in advance. That power is also being extended to the charity tribunal, so they have a similar power. Whether or not it'll be called a better rule, I, I doubt it, but it does mean that the costs going forward have given some assurance that they'll be properly paid from the charity funds, which is always useful, even if the litigation is unsuccessful. So some some goodness in that area of the world. Yeah, I think it's really sensible. It, it lines up with what we're doing in the court, anyway, when you're acting for trustees or executors. So it's called a better order. There was a case, Rebedo, uh, which determined that charities, so that trustees and executors can be indemnified for their costs. They can seek costs from the estate or trust when they're taking certain steps in mitigation. So rather than facing a personal risk. And I've seen that in real life. I remember acting, I remember when I was at a job at a law firm many years ago as a paralegal and my boss at the time got involved in an estate dispute as an executor, got involved in this estate dispute over a tiny strip of land of an estate property about three inches wide and lost the case and was faced with a personal cost order of about £35,000 because she hadn't sought better release. Again, I think it's a really good provision. So, and then the last one is, oh no, it's not the last one, it's the penultimate one, is that the Charities Commission delayed the date on which its decisions take effect to allow time for a challenge. The government said, well, look, that's for the Charity Commission to decide, but they understand the Charity Commission is accepting that recommendation. I mean, it seems sensible, isn't it? Yeah. Gives them a bit of breath- well, not breathing space, but yeah, that allows people to, you know, properly digest the, the decision and launch an appeal if they think that it's justified. And, and the last one is the other big one where the recommendation hasn't been accepted. The, the proposal was very much that the requirement to obtain the Attorney General's consent before making a reference to the Charity Tribunal, so getting that consent in writing before, should be removed. Essentially, that, that has been rejected in the response. Yeah. The, the kind of mechanism they feel that the Attorney General acts as some sort of safeguard to protect charitable interests, so they feel that they should be involved in that process. Now, I don't know about you, but when we've had to seek attorney general consent, it does take quite some time to get. So it just seems like another hoop that you have to jump through before you get to that process of going to the charity tribunal. So there's lots of steps, there's lots of safeguards already in place. It seems like a sensible solution to remove that consent, but obviously not to be in this case. So Yeah, they've kind of gone back, or not gone back, they've kind of justified by saying it's a legitimate check and balance, but the fact is, maybe the recommend, there should be a recommendation 44, which is, okay, if they're not willing to do that, is the Attorney General willing to look at these a lot quicker? You know? <laughs> so that really, that's a summary of those. Um, I hope that, that gives some clarity. But look, with any luck, perhaps in five years' time, we'll then have a, some revisions to the Charities Act. And, and hopefully this goes on the statute books quite soon in the next kind of period of time so and and it's listened to by the MPs yeah whether it's on vellum or not (laughs) but yeah thanks everyone and yeah until next time uh, we'll see you later 
you'd like to take part in the conversation, suggest a topic or need some further guidance for your organisation, please get in touch at charities at hjtalks.co.uk. For more information on Hugh James and the services we offer, visit hughjames.com or check us out on Twitter at Hugh James Legal. <laughs>